Graham is, of course, the author of The Rosie Project, but he came to writing fiction somewhat late in life. He started off in information technology, specialising in data modelling, a profession he pursued for some 25 years, mm. building up a business with a staff of over 70 people, writing one of the key texts, Data Modelling Essentials, with his colleague Graham Witt. After he sold the business, he did a PhD on the subject, analysing whether or not data modelling was analysis or design. And we might get back to that in a minute. Uh, and when he was done, a bona fide doctor enrolled in a scriptwriting course during which he wrote the original of The Rosie Project over a period of five years. Then, in a flash of insight, he decided he'd turn it into a novel. And hey presto, he was an overnight sensation. Publishers knocking on his door to get, him to, get to him and the rights for the book, which is now sold into more than 40 countries, translated into many different languages. Graham's followed up with a sequel, The Rosie Effect, launched less than two weeks ago. And we are immensely pleased to be able to bring him to Melania. So please put your hands together to welcome Graham Simpson. So I wanted to ask a rather unusual question to start with. What is data modelling? Right. You're probably going to wish you hadn't asked that question because I spent 25 years answering that question for people. Let me make it brief. Database specification. Would you like me to elaborate or will that do? I, I, I'd like not just to elaborate, but possibly if you could give us some real-world example. OK, real-world example. Let's suppose that uh, you're Anne and you're a bookseller, OK? So a bookseller says, I need a database to keep all the information about the books that we have in stock. Let's imagine for the moment she can't just buy this thing off the shelf. Oh, and she can't go to a technician who only knows about computers because the technician's going to say, what do you want me to build? And she's going to say, a database for my books. I don't understand books. I don't understand database. Problem. In the same way that you might want a house, and you go to a, a builder's labourer and say, build me the house, you need a middle person, a designer. Yeah. And that person, when we're talking about databases, is called the data modeler. And the data modeler says, what do you want, Anne? And she says, this and this. No, no, that won't work. How about this? How many authors can a book have? Does a book ever change its ISBN? All that sort of information about the data. And then they draw a plan, and they give that to the database technician, and the database technician says, I get it, and they build it. Does that work? <clears throat> well, I, I have mean, to say that is the first time anybody has asked me that question at a book event, OK? Just thought <laughs> you'd like to know that. Well, I, I, because when I was doing the research for you, I actually downloaded Data Modelling Essentials and read the introduction, I would like to say. And, and you've actually demonstrated something to me in your answer, which I picked up for myself, that even though you weren't writing novels back in those days, you were also you were already in command of English in some ways, because the introduction is quite comprehensive. It, it, while it's dealing with quite a difficult subject, it makes it lucid and comprehensible. And I, I also, in the research, watched a TED talk that you did, and you were talking about how that process that you did there, you took that design process of designing data, of doing data modeling as design, into the process of script writing. Yeah. Um, that's not something that's easy to convince people about. But I mean, the reality is, when, when you're like me, and I didn't start studying screenwriting until I was 50 years old, you've got to make the most of what you learned up to that point. And you say, OK, um, from writing a book, I'd learnt about not only to have a reasonable command of English, but I knew how to work with the editing process. 
I knew how to manage a large project. And something that new writers often struggle with is, is dealing with the, yeah, they can write a, a wonderful 2,000 word short story. Um, and Sally was talking about writing vignettes. But it's another task again to get to an 80,000 word novel or, or a screenplay, a one and a half hour, two hour screenplay, and actually manage that. So I learned lots of techniques for managing complexity. You know, when, when you do a, a, a data model, you use diagrams. You draw little squares for all the data you want to hold and that sort of thing. When you um, do a screenplay, you do index cards for each scene. So each scene has a little card, and then you lay them out on the floor, and you shuffle them, or in Hollywood it's a giant whiteboard or something, but in my place it's the floor, and you shuffle them around to change the order to see if this, because you know scenes can be played out in different orders and so on. You change the order, you see that there's something missing here, you add new cards. When I was doing the Rosie effect, I was worried that Rosie wasn't in enough scenes, that we were going too long without seeing her, so I coloured all the cards for Rosie pink so that I could see if, Ro you know, if Rosie was in the scene or not. And then visually you look at the thing on the floor and say, ah, there's a long stretch without Rosie. Better do a little shuffle. Have so I taken all the mystique out of it? <laughs> and uh, one, one of the things was the, you, that I read that you'd said was that the character of Don Tillman was based on someone that you used to work with. Well, his voice was based around someone you used to work with in IT. Did, did you ever show him any of the work? Did you actually ever kind of front up to him and say, look, here's, here's the book? Matter of fact, the first person I showed the book to when I drafted it was my wife. And said, what do you think? And she said, what do you want to know? And I said, does it read like a real book? To my wife who reads three or four books a week, plus has got her first novel coming out next year. And she said, ooh. So I showed it to my daughter. What do you think? She said, better than I thought, Dad. <laughs> better than I expected. And the next person I showed it to was my friend who I've been running with for about 30 years, um, jogging with, and I said, what do you think? Well, I didn't, actually. I, he was reading it on the plane to Las Vegas, and he texted me from the plane. He's the sort of guy who can do that. He texted me from the plane to Las Vegas and said, this is the greatest novel I have ever read. So... <laughs> oh, well, congratulations on that. And he's been an enthusiastic... Consultant, if you like. The, book, the first book's dedicated to him and his wife. And the second book, he's been an enthusiastic consultant on. We go jogging together and I say, tell me what you know about childbirth. And he goes, ah, oh, I read this thing about morning sickness. That's incredible. And away he goes. <laughs> I mean, there, was, there was one point where he said to me, and the reason for morning sickness is because there's a danger of toxins affecting the developing fetus. And it's therefore, if something critical is happening, such as... Such as an arm is being assembled. <laughs> so, so I just took that, the assembly of an arm, I just took that out of his mouth and put it in the book. It was just such a nice... <laughs> Your body is probably assembling some critical component, such as an arm. <laughs> the, the sympathetic husband at work. <laughs> what was it that attracted you to romantic comedy as, the, as, the, as a field of endeavour? You know what, I fell into it. I started off with a character and a story, and it was actually a story that came from my friend, my jogging friend's life. And it's actually a very dramatic, it's a very sad story. Um, about, you know, I mean, essentially, um, he, he eventually found a partner after a real struggle, and she became very, very seriously ill, and you know, it's, it's a very dramatic story. And that was the, the idea for a screenplay I went into my screenwriting studies with. 
And then as it developed, I, I discovered very early on that people found the character and the anecdotes really funny. That hadn't been my intention. It was like, you're not supposed to be laughing, guys. This is serious. And, and my, my comedy mentor said to me a couple of years later, but at the time I sort of worked it out for myself, that if you are gifted a character who creates humour wherever they go, don't waste them on drama. It's a lot easier to find dramatic characters than comedic characters. And there are certain characters that just, whenever they walk into a scene, they're going to make it funny. And I went through an ethical you know, debate with myself, um, talked it through with my wife and Sonia. Were we picking on Asperger's syndrome? Because you know, that's what Don has. Um, were we picking on Asperger's syndrome? Now, hold on. We'll second. come back to that, okay? <laughs> but were we picking on that? Was it ethical to do this? Um, decided after a long, yes, it was. This was, fair. this was fair enough and reasonable. And then, so I had a story. It was funny, or people found it funny, and I realised the shape of the story, in fact, was the shape of a romantic comedy. So at that point, oh my God, I've got a romantic comedy on my hands, and it was at that point I went off and I studied romantic comedy to learn how it was done and what the tricks were and so forth. But romantic comedy, it's, it's something that's kind of looked down on a little bit, isn't mm. it? It's, it's a bit lowbrow. People look down on the Rosie Project. I mean, it, it's, it's only a shape. How much intelligence you put into that shape um, how much skill in writing you put into that shape is, is up to the writer. It's only a shape which says that certain things have... Greek tragedy is only a shape. People don't look down on Greek tragedy because it's Greek tragedy. Um, it's because it's tragic. Yeah, well, yes. I mean, comedy has always been regarded as a, as a slightly lower art than but drama. But much harder to achieve. Oh, let me say, it's... I don't want to make the comparison with you know, great comedy, great drama, except to say it is hard to write comedy. It's, you may think it's low, but it ain't low to write. It's difficult to write. I think it's a very underestimated art. I think romantic comedy is... It, it's seen particularly as a feminine interest. If you, it's seen as a, films that are romantic comedy are seen as chick lit. Well, um, the history of it is that romantic comedy came out of the screwball comedy which is 1930s, 40s and so forth, films like His Girl Friday, Bringing Up Baby, The Philadelphia Story, even later films like The Apartment with Jack Lemmon and Shirley MacLaine and so on. And, and those films were pretty interesting because they, I mean, something like The Apartment tackles some pretty heavy issues. It, it tackles adultery, it tackles suicide. It's, it's all actually out there um, on the screen. And they had strong women and they were laugh out loud funny, whereas the modern romantic comedy largely has put aside the laugh out loud funny for the emotional hit. I mean, there's not that many laughs and sleepless in Seattle. And, and they, and the, but the movie makers have started to realise that there's not much point making a, a, a film for date night if the bloke doesn't want to go along. And, and that's why some, films like Something About Mary and so forth were trying to sort of play into that, you know, getting the bloke to come along too. Have I said something that was unintentionally funny? Just look out at the demographic here yeah. and see how many blokes and how many were there. No. Um, so look, let's, let's go into the book here for a second. Don, at the beginning of... You wanted to do... You wanted to ask some questions. How many people have read The Rosie Project in the room here? See, there's a good smattering of people, so I don't think you're going to too many spoilers there. Has anybody read The Rosie Effect? Got a few people okay. in the Rosie effect, so still too many spoilers. Not many for spoilers there. We'll have to be careful of what we talk about. At the beginning of the Rosie effect, we, Don discovers that Rosie is pregnant. How does how does he react? Uh, he has a meltdown. As he points out, well, the trouble with Don, the trouble with Don at the beginning of the book is he's already at the maximum extreme of stress. They they have already changed one of the lecture theatres due to due to building. There's been a disaster with his washing. 
You know, some of it's been dyed purple by somebody piggybacking on the washing in the washing machine. This is a big week for Don. But, but on top of this, on top of this, he has also invited his best friend, the philandering Jean, to come and live with them. And he hasn't yet got around to explaining this to Rosie, who hates Jean. Okay? So he's already absolutely on the precipice. He's struck with the maximum possible force, as he says, and he has a meltdown. He goes nuts, which is a, a fairly a darker sort of look at Don from what we see in the first book. But, but he also then, of course, absorbs the whole situation and decides that yeah. he needs to become the world's greatest expert on pregnancy. Rationality had returned to repair the damage that emotions had caused. Yep, he was... <laughs> he, he just realised he's just going to get on top of this, and you know, what you need to do is, obviously, with pregnancy, you're going to need to bring the standardised meal system back. Yeah? <laughs> obviously. Obvious, and he buys himself a copy of um, What to Expect When You're Expecting, and he swallows it. <laughs> so he makes sure that Rosie's living the right sort of life. Exactly. And, and, By and, the book. And, and would you assume that this is the correct response from Rosie's point of view? Well, Rosie's not... We can work that out. Rosie's not exactly enamoured of Don deciding to be a control freak on her life. And, and reverting to type, as it were. They've been made quite a few accommodations in this marriage, but what happens to all of us when we get put back on the defensive, when we get into trouble, we revert to type. So Don has gone back to his old habits as a, as a response to this extra stress that he's been put under, which in turn puts Rosie under stress, and, well, their marriage starts to come under just a little bit of stress. There's a lot of discussion in these books about what you were saying before about the Asperger spectrum. The Asperger spectrum. Yeah. But... And, and clearly, Don belongs somewhere on it, but doesn't Rosie belong on it somewhere as well? That's an extraordinarily interesting question. I mean, I, just to say, I, I, we never actually say in either book that Don has Asperger's syndrome. It, it's mentioned, it's put out there, Don pushes it away, and I have been, I pushed it away for a long time because people would say, how much research did you do on Asperger's syndrome? And I'd say, 30 years in information technology, what more do you want me to do? <laughs> My, my old friend Merv Connell is here tonight, and we worked together for a while, and he would know. Um, so, so I would say, look, I don't actually haven't studied Asperger's syndrome. These people that I fed into Don's character, not just my running buddy, but quite a lot of people I met fed into Don's character. These people were never diagnosed with Asperger's. They didn't belong to the generation that had that diagnosis. So I don't know, but I sat down with a, a well-known Queenslander, with Tony Atwood, Professor Tony Atwood, international guru on Asperger's syndrome, and I started my spiel. Tony, all I did was chant, I said, Graham, Don has Asperger's syndrome, okay? <laughs> Take it from me. So, so he's been officially diagnosed. <laughs> Off the page is having, a, is having Asperger's syndrome. But there was a second part to your question, wasn't there? The, 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 the second part of the question was whether Rosie has, is on the spectrum ah, as, yeah. uh, as well. I can see why I was avoiding that question. Um, well, when I, when I spoke to Tony, Tony said, you know, this, this is after the Rosie Project, of course, had been published. He said, there's two types of women, broadly speaking, who marry men with Asperger's syndrome, because it's yeah. usually the man who has the Asperger's syndrome. One is the sort of sharing, caring, I want to help, I'm, you know, I'm going to just accommodate this, I'm going to be the, the yin to his yang, and so on. And the other one is the person who's a bit aspy themselves. And, and you don't see it so obviously in women because they cover it up better with, their, their, with often better empathy skills, etc. And I thought to myself, well, I know which I think Rosie is, and you were right. And there was actually, I'll tell you a secret, there was a line in the, um, in the Rosie effect where they have a party. 
and at, at their apartment, and one of Rosie's classmates, because she started doing a medical course, says to Don, you know, that was all pretty interesting, you know, but what's, you know, we were just sort of wondering about Rosie, blah, 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 blah. We just wondered if she might be a bit aspy. And my editors just went, wow, you can't say that. And in, in retrospect, I took it out, but left enough on the page that you can get the message, that people regard her as just a... She doesn't have a lot of friends. She's doing a very technical sort of subject. She's doing an MD and a PhD at the same time. She gets on well with Don, you know. Um, <laughs> so they, there's a certain amount of, of commonality that goes on here. So it's an interesting question, though. What, what, she is one of the strengths of the Rosie Project and the Rosie Effect. Okay, so it, even though we kind of get to know her through Don's eyes, how was it that you managed to create such a full, fully formed female character? Well, creating Rosie was the hardest thing across those two books. If you ask me, what was the hardest thing to do of everything? It was creating Rosie as a character. In fact, the book was originally called The Clara Project. Sorry, the screenplay was originally called The Clara Project. It was that for um, two and a half years. And there was a point where I just decided it wasn't good enough, and my teachers were in agreement with that. And I, I threw it in the bin, and what, I pulled a few things out of the bin eventually, but one of them that I left in the bin was, was Clara. Clara was a nerdy Hungarian physicist. She was perfect for Don. We could see how this would all work. And I wanted to say, no, I want someone who can take it up to Don, who will meet him at the same level, will give him as good as he gets, and who's got her own issues. Because it was very important to me that she would ultimately need Don. There's a, a, a type character, a stereotype, called the manic pixie dream girl. Who, and, and, there's, and there's no reason for her to help the man except... She's just trapped into helping men, as it were. I didn't want someone who was only in the relationship to help Don. She had to be taking something else away from it, which in the, in the simple physical sense is that she's trying to find out who her father is and Don can help. But we learn that there's more that Don can give her at, at a deeper level. Um, and in order to create that character, I worked very closely with my wife. This is my, my wife's a writer as well. She's also a professor of psychiatry. And we just sat down and we worked out Rosie's story and... If you'd asked me a year or so ago, where did Rosie come from? Was there anybody, any human beings input? I'd say, oh, look, there's possibly a little bit of so-and-so that I knew and so-and-so I knew, but really, she's a technical creation. In the second book, in The Rosie Effect, she takes a bit of a back seat, but mm -hmm. it seems to me that there, there's actually more to that that's ha than, than meets the eye. Do you want to speak to that? Yeah, look, um, some, some readers have been disappointed by Rosie's lower presence in the second novel. I actually don't even think that's true. I actually want someone to go through both novels and count how many pages she appears on. Because, in fact, Rosie doesn't appear until quite a way into the first, into the first novel. She's not there in some quite extended things like when Don drives up to Maury and, and so on. But it's just an impression they get. I think part of it is there's more characters that are important in the second novel. And I wanted to show Don's life in greater richness than just the domestic environment. You know, and frankly... You know, people might say, I feel Rosie's gone, gone missing a bit, but I, it, they would probably go mad if it was so cloistered that it was always happening within this tight little domestic environment. We want to see Don's life. It's a first-person narrative, so we can't see Rosie's life when Don's not there, not in any direct way. So, and I wanted to show how Don gets on with other males, how he gets on at university. We really hardly see him at work in the first book, and I wanted to show some of those sorts of things. And, and these books 
are ultimately primarily about Don. Rosie's a very, very important character, but it's a character study in Don in many ways. So I and, wanted to And, take and in some ways, you're seeing Rosie through the eye, through oh, Don's yeah. eyes. I mean, his his predicament with her being pregnant. I mean, it's not it's not Rosie as some kind of autonomous being. It's Rosie connected to him as a problem that he has to solve. Look, I had one critic who was concerned about the view of pregnancy. It's not a objective view of pregnancy. It's a husband's view of pregnancy. And we don't see that in the page very often. There's a lot of chiclet out there that, that, that does pregnancy, but it's invariably from the woman's point of view. And we get, you know, you get very, very little that says this is the husband's experience of his wife being pregnant, of both, of both expecting a, a baby. Um, and, this is, and Don Tillman is not your average guy as well. But, um, of course, you know, you've got a guy with Asperger's syndrome who's giving his impression of his wife being pregnant. That is not going to be the same picture as you get in Kathy Lett's book about being pregnant, for example. It's going to be different. Of course it is. So there. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> and, and look, this, this might be a good time for a, a, a reading. Would you mind giving us a short reading from well, The Rosie Effect? Okay, I was, I was wondering which book to read from, but when I saw well, that... No, whichever one, whichever one no, no, your I, choice I, I, I saw that show of hands, and I figure you, you tend to know the, the Rosie project, so I think we now know enough about the Rosie effect to know what situation Don finds himself in. To solve the immediate nutrition problem, I selected a vegetarian recipe at random from one of the websites. A jog by a Trader Joe's sufficed to source all the necessary ingredients for a tofu and squash flan. I was left with an afternoon of unscheduled time, an ideal opportunity to do some research in line with Jean's advice. It seemed wise to delay the shower and change until after my excursion, especially as the weather forecast indicated a 30% probability of rain. I put my light raincoat on over my jogging costume and added a cycling hat for hair protection. <laughs> there was a small playground on 10th Avenue, only a few blocks away was perfect. I was able to sit on a bench alone and watch children with their guardians. Binoculars would have been helpful, but I could observe gross motor actions and even hear some conversation, especially as much of it was shouted. I was not disturbed. In fact, on the sole occasion that a child approached me, it was immediately summoned back. I made several observations in my notebook. The children explored for short distances but routinely checked and returned to their guardians. I recalled seeing a documentary in which this behaviour was made more obvious by fast motion replay, but could not recall what type of animal was involved. <laughs> my phone had substantial available memory, so I began shooting my own video. Jean would definitely be interested. My recording was interrupted by some kind of communal activity. The guardians and children gathered together for approximately 20 seconds, and then moved to the other end of the playground, where my view of them was obscured by a central island of foliage. I followed and sat where I could observe them again. But they did not resume their play. I decided to wait and use the time to change the video resolution on my phone in case it was an opportunity to film a longer segment. Due to my focus on the camera operating task, I did not notice the approach of two uniformed male police officers. In retrospect, I may not have handled the situation well. But it was an unfamiliar social protocol in unexpected circumstances driven by rules which I did not know. I was also struggling with the video application, which I had downloaded because of its superior compression algorithm, 
without due attention to its user-friendliness. What do you think you're doing? This was the marginally older policeman. I guess they were both in their 30s and in good physical shape. Body mass indexes approximately 23. I think I'm configuring the resolution, but it's possible I'm doing something different. It's unlikely you will be able to assist unless you're familiar with the application. Well, I guess we should get out of your way and leave you with the kids. Excellent. Good luck fighting crime. Get up. This was an unexpected change of attitude on the part of the younger colleague. Perhaps I was seeing a demonstration of the good cop, bad cop protocol. I looked to good cop to see if I would receive contrary instructions. Do you also require me to stand up? Good cop assisted me to stand. Forcefully. My dislike of being touched is visceral, and my response was similarly automatic. I did not pin or throw my assailant, but I did use a simple Aikido move to disengage and distance him from me. He staggered back and bad cop pulled his gun. Good cop produced handcuffs. <laughs> so Don's in trouble again. <laughs> What made you decide to set it in New York? I inherited it. The, the, the truth is that... Oh, hold on a sec. Uh, where's it? Uh, hello. The, 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 the truth is that I, um, that I had no intention of writing a sequel. So in the tradition of romantic comedies, which is a tradition of romantic comedies, note critics, I tied up all the loose ends in a nice, neat package and said, done. And as a way of tying it up, I moved Don and Rosie to New York. I enrolled her in a doctor of medicine program. I gave Don a visiting lecturing job and said he saw his buddy, um, Dave, the fat baseball fan, on a regular basis. Nice, neat, all done. When I decided to write a sequel, that was the bed I had made for myself. I, you know, I could have said, oh, they didn't like New York and went home and so on, and, and Dave and Don had a falling out. And, but no, no, that's where they were. Let's pick that up. Those are the threads. All that Don has to do is to pull one and they'll start unravelling. So let's tell that story starting from there. And I mean, what was fun in many ways was that stuff that was just in their throwaway line. I made Dave, the baseball fan, a refrigeration engineer. Because it's a little nod to my brother-in-law, who's a refrigeration engineer. Nice job, nice guy, that sort of thing. And that's really important to the next book. It was just a profession to give him, but it's really important in the Rosie effect. We use that, that he's a refrigeration engineer. He's a fridgy. In fact, but you were quite happy to inherit the New York thing, in a way. You, it, was a, it was a good place to put the novel? Look, I don't know. Um, it was what I had, so I worked with it. The beauty of writing Don Tillman is that what... Whatever, wherever he goes, he's going to create humour. So it, it's my job not to worry too much about setting up these, these big humorous sequences. I, I do it occasionally, but, um, but rather just to tell a story that, that starts with the material you have and say, what would happen? And you throw in a few wild cards occasionally, but most of the time you've got to let it just roll with the circumstances. So I read... Speaking of Don Tillman, I read in the Woman's Weekly article about you this month that you get all sorts of women... I read the Woman's Weekly. I'm up. I'm, I'm up. Well, I haven't read that article I'm a modern yet. man. I read in the Woman's Weekly that all sorts of women saying they want to marry Don. Don? It's not extraordinary. 
You get letters from letters from women saying they want to marry Don. The, the, the oh, did they want to marry you? The Have article is headed about... unexpected heartthrob, and I assumed it was. Yeah, never mind. Now, uh, <laughs> there you go. That's shattered my dreams. Um, at 58. Um, yeah, it's it's a really weird thing because when I was writing the screenplay, I was constantly getting feedback, you know, essentially from my two um, male um, coaches as I was going through this because I, I did this the. Um, intellectual starter, the uh, uh, feature film class twice. I, I failed it the first time because I didn't submit and came back the next year and had another go at it. It's with the two eminent film producers. And they kept saying to me, nobody's going to like Don Tillman. He's an annoying person. He's totally unsympathetic. People are going to hate him. That's your fundamental flaw. So I worked very, very hard on making him sympathetic. And I feel I may have overdone it because... <laughs> I get so many people on Twitter and that sort of saying, I'd give up being a vegetarian if I could marry Don Tillman. And I think, no, you don't want that. And then where it's actually translated um, in a negative way for me is that there are some readers of the Rosie effect. So Don and Rosie are married and it gets to a point where Rosie is just wondering whether this is worth going on with. And it's sort of, how could you think that about Don? And anybody who's reading what he's doing on the page is going to be thinking, oh, if my husband, just think, if it was your husband doing that, how long you'd tolerate it? But he's so sweet. <laughs> I know that you said that the first book, after you managed to plot the, the, the script and get it down that five years, but actually when you sort of sat down to turn it into a, a long-form prose, it was very simple for you. How was it approaching the second book? Way easier. If I look at it in totality, so given that the first book, you know, I had to come up with a plot and a screenplay form and the characters in screenplay form and so on. So I had to do all that work, even if I called it a screenplay. And then at the end, sure, converting it was a reasonably straightforward task. Obviously, the second book, I was starting almost from scratch again, except the toughest job with the Rosie project was inventing Rosie. The second toughest job was getting Don's voice precise. It's not my, my friend's voice. It's inspired by my friend's voice, and I wanted a particular voice, and I think that's you know, what the Rosie thing is all about, is Don's voice. So that, they were enormously challenging jobs. And I had those already in place when I started the Rosie effect. I didn't have to reinvent them. So the hardest work was done. Also, I'd had five years of learning to write. This was the first novel, you were learning how to do it. And I guess I've come out of a professional background, and what you learn in that sort of professional background is if something doesn't work, Maybe you try it again, but if it doesn't work a second time, you stop doing it. And if something does work for you, do more of it. So I had a very good idea of what worked for me, what didn't work for me, and was able to go into that sec... For the second novel, I felt I knew what I was doing, which is a very nice nice way to be. It's like, you know, the first time you repair an engine on a car or something like that, you don't know what you're doing. You, you have to find your way. You look at the manual all the time. The second time, you approach it with some degree of confidence. And that was how it felt. I mean, interesting enough for myself, I, I did some script writing before I had any success with writing novels, and it felt to me like I'd been writing novels for ages and struggling and getting lost in them, but it was the, the discipline of the film script that taught me that the tightness, the tautness that's required of a plot. Did you, is that something similar that you found? Look, I, I say to aspiring novelists, if they want to write you know, general fiction rather than poetry, whatever, um, that they should read a book on screenwriting, preferably two, because screenwriters know a lot about storytelling. 
They don't know everything you need to know to write a novel, but they are very good at storytelling and at compression. If I, if I read The Rosie Project aloud, well, the, the narrator of the audiobook takes seven and a half hours to read The Rosie Project. As a romantic comedy, that would run no more than 100 minutes, no more than just over an hour and a half. So, boy, do you have to compress. You've got to tell that story in 90 minutes, 100 minutes, tightly, and it means entering your scenes as late as you can, not telling people stuff they can work out for themselves, um, keep, and it means that you, your story moves along tightly into good pace without fat. And is there, I mean, you're talking Robert McKee. Who are we talking about in terms of in terms of script writing? Well, well, Sid Field would be the first place I'd go because he was the original. He basically deconstructed, reverse engineered Hollywood films to say this is the structures that he saw in those films. So someone like um, Blake uh, Blake Snyder, who wrote um, Save the Cat would be a more modern version of Sid Field, just picking out the typical beats in a story. And it reads pretty formulaic, um, and I'm not saying you should slavishly follow the formula, but it really does help to know the beats in a story. And th then I would go away from screenwriting and probably look at um, uh, The Hero with a Thousand Faces, Joseph Campbell, which, you know, for, again, for story formula, for want of a better term, for story beats. Yeah, well, there's that thing about the character arc, about yeah. making sure that you, at any given time in the story, you know wh where you are on this on this yeah. particular character's yeah. And then I get, and Robert, Robert McKee's actually quite advanced stuff. I would get to Robert McKee after reading all of those. Although Robert McKee is a man who, in my opinion, could do with a lot of editing himself. If you were going well, to yeah. read that book, if it's about 500 it's pages book. long. If it was 125, it would be a lot better. Yeah, well, Sid Field's screenplay is that sort of size, and it's still, I think, uh, for the amount of time you spend writing a novel, to take a few hours out and read that book will be worth your while. I'm, I'm interested to know who it is that you admire. Who do you read that you, you like to? I mean, where did your... Most writers come to, come to writing from, a, from reading and they want to emulate something. Is there, is there people like that who you admire? Um, I don't think there are any... There are particular writers... There, sorry, there are particular writers who have, I have liked at a particular stage of my life and have, I guess often not gone back to them because I felt I would be disappointed that they belonged to a certain time when I was growing up. If you asked me you know, an example of a great novel, I would pick probably The Plague by Albert Camus um, because it does what... You know, it's eminently readable. It's, you know, it, it's a perfectly well-plotted, absorbing novel and yet it has got some tremendous... It examines some tremendously powerful issues, the most fundamental questions of, of the meaning of life. You know, why do we live? Um, what's, what's our purpose on earth to do if you don't believe in a, in a deity? Um, so, yeah, that's a tremendously powerful novel. Um, I read a lot of, you know, in tone, um, I get a lot from, uh, I really enjoyed reading uh, John Irving um, in, his, in his sort of purple period around the world according to Garth, the Hotel New Hampshire, um, A Prayer for Owen Meany. These are terrific books with just that slightly heightened sense of reality, which I, I quite like to go for. Mm. But John Fowles, um, you're not allowed to say you like Philip Roth anymore, but I... Well, of course you are. Philip oh, Roth. Okay, Philip, I like Philip, Philip Roth. There are many of us in this, in this hall who think Philip Roth is one of the great writers of our time. Can't yeah. work out why he never got the Nobel. Yeah, well, there you go. So, you know, um, yeah, so, I mean, and I, and I would tend to go on a, on a jag with reading a particular writer, like reading... Look, I read, read a whole lot of Joanne um, Harris, Chocolat, and okay. so forth at one stage. So that's really quite popular fiction that most people would sort of say, say is leaning into chiclet sort of territory, but really enjoyed it. She's a very good writer. Now, look, we're getting on in time, so I think we might open up to the floor for mm. questions. Are you happy to take some questions from the floor? Do we have anyone Ooh. who would like to be biting their tongue, waiting to, to ask Graham something? And if it's who do you want to play, who do you want to play Don Tillman in the movie, I'll ask it for you. 
<laughs> my most popular question. Um, no, what I wanted to know is when it is being turned into a movie, how much creative control will you have? I can tell you exactly how much creative control I've got in the movie contractually, and that is I've got to write the first two drafts of the screenplay. That's a deal. Um, after that, in the Hollywood tradition, unless you happen to be J.K. Rowling, um, they, will, um, they can do what they like with it. Er Ernest Hemingway famously said, what you do with a film script is you write it, you drive to the California state line, you toss it over and you get the hell out of there. And, and I, that's not a bad philosophy. Um, so now I have an excellent relationship so far with Sony Pictures. They talk to me about stuff that they don't have to talk to me about. So I hope there'll be an ongoing collaboration, but all I'm allowed, to, you know, and the, the extra writers they inevitably bring on, they've actually nominated extra writers. Um, these guys most recently did uh, The Fault in Our Stars. They did 500 Days of Summer. They've got some, they've got some cred. Um, and hopefully they'll, they've connected with me on Twitter, which is sort of sweet. And you know, hopefully we'll go back and forth um, as we work together. But just to say, it's interesting. As a writer, people say, oh, that's so good that you've got a screenwriting gig because you will be able to exert absolute ironclad control to make sure that your book is not compromised in any way. No, I wouldn't get to talk to them if that was my attitude. Um, as a screenwriter, you know that, that the movie medium is different from a book. They have their individual strengths. The story will be told differently on screen to suit that medium. And you also have a pragmatic view of Hollywood, which is people are going to mess with it whether you like it or not. So are you using that script that you wrote previously? Yeah, am I using the script that I wrote previously? Um, yes, what happened was I took the, the original script and that was my starting point with Hollywood. And then we you know, discussed with the producers, got what they call notes, you know, like, please change this. And you know, we, we went around a couple, of, a couple of iterations to get it better. I'm happy it's a better script now. What sort of a kid was I? <clears throat> I was the sort of kid you would expect to write the Don Kilman character. <laughs> so I was a pretty geeky, awkward sort of kid who was, someone who knows me back from those days says, I remember you fixing radios. Does that give you a sort of a, a sense of it? I was a radio ham who got his amateur radio license at 15. Um, I was pretty good at maths and science. But let, let me tell you a quick story, okay? Because Actually, it's not that quick a story. Can I tell it anyway? Okay, so, <laughs> okay, so you, you don't need to have Asperger's syndrome to be socially awkward. When I was 12 years old, my family moved from New Zealand to Australia, and because I was good at maths and science, and because there were differences in the school systems, I got put up two classes. And let me tell you, a lot of women in this audience, imagine yourself 15, and the shortest kid in the class, boy, who's 13 years old, comes up to you with his squeaky voice and asks you on a date. Okay, so that was my life. It made me sort of gregarious because I just had to keep trying. But, but the, way, the way I responded to this, unfortunately, at that age, was I became the class clown. And my bunny was my English teacher. I used to pick on her unmercifully, used to wind her up, never broke the rules, just upset her, which is what Don does, of course, at school. I became this annoying class clown. I got her to throw a book at me once. Um, I had her in tears on more than one. Any school teachers here? <laughs> I'm, gonna have to, I'm afraid I'm going to have to tell the whole story or they're not going to buy any books at the end, okay? So, which would be the ultimate. Setback. So, if it makes you feel any better, when I got to my, um, my final year of school, I was 15, and I tried it on my, my final year teacher, 
And she just looked at me and said, I don't like your attitude, young man. You can leave this class and come back when you changed it, which I never did. And I went through that year, and that's where I actually got to like books like The Plague because I, they were prescribed books, and I studied them so deeply and carefully that at the end of the year, even though I'd never gone back to class, I was top student in English at the school, and um, my teacher had mixed feelings about that. So, so now to just... So, <laughs> At, but as a result, I'd been so frightened I was going to fail English because I kept getting failing marks for the failing grades for the assignments from this teacher who was trying to send me a message. But when, when I got to university, I finally I met this girl one night at a party, age appropriate, and <clears throat> and with my practiced skills, I secured myself a date. And I turned up at her house in my 1959 Volkswagen, walked to the door. Her mother opened it, and she was my fourth form English teacher. <laughs> True story. <laughs> it was a short-lived relationship. Um, this one's a, a bit more serious question. Um, I was chatting with my cousin about the Rosie Project, which I thoroughly enjoyed, and at no stage did I feel that you were laughing at people with Asperger's syndrome. She has a very good friend who has a teenage son with Asperger's and she only started reading the novel and then stopped um, because she said, yes, it's laugh out loud funny, but my friend's life is anything but funny uh, and she couldn't read it because of the pain. Um, and I'm just wondering what sort of reaction... I, you know, I really felt that you were opening people's eyes to the fact that it's not us and them, it's um, just a different way of looking at life and a different way of reacting to situations. And But I'm just wondering what sort of reaction you've had from people with Asperger's or people who work with them or their parents or their relatives um, and how they see it. I can count on one hand the number of people who've told me stories like yours which has been very, very gratifying for me because I was tremendously concerned that this was not something which would make life more difficult for the Asperger's community. I ran it past been eight or ten people who were in that community, including one guy with pretty severe autism, and it took a very long time to work out. You know, it was questions like, do you ever feel like Don? No, I'm not a geneticist. And it was just like... <laughs> we had to really work, work through the, the literality of it all. But um, ov overall the response from the Asperger's community has been enormously positive, far more than I expected. I thought it might go 80-20. It's been literally 98-2 or something like that. In fact, I've spoken to many Asperger's groups at their invitation. Um, I'm quite um, associated now, or had a lot to do with the, um, the Danish company, which is mentioned in the Rosie Project, which employs people with Asperger's syndrome to do computer systems testing. And they were actually doing a joint venture with the um, Department of Human Services and Hewlett-Packard setting that up in, in Adelaide at the moment. So, uh, so I've spoken to, to several of these groups. I have had some... Look, I'll give you a serious answer here too. Um, the most moving moment I've had this whole book exercise was someone was in a line and she got to the head of it and she said, Graham, um, I want to take a couple of moments of your time and say that my brother... Um, had a very difficult life, and it wasn't until he was in his 40s that they diagnosed him as an adult with Asperger's syndrome. The family immediately rallied around. They said, good, we can put a name on it. They got the books. They read books on Asperger's syndrome. And she said it was only after he'd passed away 
and I read between the lines that, that I got the impression that he perhaps had taken his own life. Um, it was only after he passed away that we read The Rosie Project and understand, understood what his life was like. It was an extraordinary statement. They actually took it up with Tony Atwood, who said, yeah, well, of course, because you're writing from the inside. And by the way, I do not identify as having Asperger's myself, but I've, I've tried to put myself in the shoes of many people that I've known over many, many years. And that there's not much that's written in that first person from the inside. On the, on the day that I launched the book, The Rosie Project, you know, it was a pretty big moment in my life, public launch of the book. All the friends and family and rent a crowd there, you know, da-da, round of applause, and this guy marches straight up to me, says, Graham, my name is Daniel and I have Asperger's syndrome and I have a problem with your book. <laughs> I said, tell me. And he said, page 33, line 17. <laughs> he says, Don says he doesn't want a partner who's mathematically illiterate. The word is enumerate. <laughs> and then he said, Don Tillman would not make that mistake. And I said to him, I said, interesting you should mention that. I had an argument with my American editor about exactly that point, and the issue is that a mathematician will use the term mathematically illiterate to mean something different from enumerate, to mean you're not good at calculus, algebra, and so forth. He said, oh, that's all right then. He said, I'll take three copies. <laughs> and he said, I said, why three copies? He said, to give to my friends to show what it's like. So, so I mean... But, but I, I, look, I would, I would counsel you that, you that your friend, whose friend, uh, it would be interesting, and I hope not cruel, to put in the hands of the, of the mother who actually has the, the boy with Asperger's, because the people who have taken offence about the book are seldom members of the Asperger's community themselves. They're far more likely to be taking offence on behalf of someone who they think will be offended by it. But the people in the community, both those who have Asperger's and those who... Um, one quick one, can I get in here? One more, one more quick story here. Okay, I don't respond to critics, generally. But um, there, was, there was one critic in a, in a UK paper whose com complaint about the Rosie Project was, somebody like Don would rather stay home playing with his computer than invest in a relationship. And I was not madly happy about that, but then an Israeli newspaper actually put that quote in front of me and asked me to comment on it. So I figured that was a question now. And... I called my friend who had inspired the Don character and said, how do you react to that? He almost went troppo. He said, you know, let's be absolutely clear here. Just because we're not good at it doesn't mean we don't want it, that we don't want connection with other humans. This is a guy who spent 25 years married to someone with, with dementia, basically, with very severe multiple sclerosis involving dementia, and so has looked after her because he values that relationship so highly. So he just considered that a terrible insult and, and ignorant stereotyping of it. And, you know, so... You know, the idea, you know, if people have got a problem with the idea that people with Asperger's can have relationships and so on, and you know, the stuff that says, oh, it wouldn't end up like that, they couldn't have a happy ending. Well, a lot of people I know who've got Asperger's or who are like Don are in relationships. We're all different. We all come to relationships. Relationships are different for different people. So it's very easy to apply our own values too. Ladies and gentlemen, I, we're, we're running, we've run out of time, so I'd like to ask you please to put your hands together for Graham Simpson. <laughs> <laughs>